Hey, podcast listeners, Ethan Millard and Alex Curie here from the Nightside Project podcast here at KSL Podcast. Get into Zen Headlines with us on the Nightside Project. Use hashtag Zen Headlines on social media to share stories that make you think, make you smile, spread love, spread joy, all those things. We'll share them on the Nightside Project podcast. One of the most popular podcasts ever. Nightside is a KSL podcast. Subscribe for free anywhere you listen to podcasts. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara, cold-cut combo, veggie delight, or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. This is part two of our episode with Erwin Kula and Craig Hatkoff. The piece of advice that I say to everybody, embrace the sacred messiness of life. The messiness is where all, is the grist for the mill. The messiness is where all the wisdom is. The messiness is where all the growth is. And sometimes it sucks. And sometimes it's not fair. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Also, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let him become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper. But uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all. So I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, so totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. If you didn't catch part one, I really encourage you to go back, hear about more about their backgrounds. Um, we're just going to jump right back into the conversation where we left off, though. Erwin, I want to start with you. Um, I, I didn't know that you were going to take the conversation this direction, talking about curiosity. But, um, you know, I'm a really big fan of that Brian Glazier book, uh, A Curious Mind, you know, that mm -hmm. producer mm -hmm. who made A Beautiful Mind and all those <laughs> famous movies, right? And and uh, his book really makes the case for um, the role of curiosity and, and maybe how it isn't focused on as much, even though it's such a powerful tool. I'd be interested. I mean, you're, you're applying Clayton Christensen's methodologies and thought processes about disruptive innovation in completely different domains. Can you go just a little bit deeper on this crossover of curiosity, the, the disruptive theory, and you know, domains that it maybe wasn't initially thought of being applied to? Yeah. So for me, I mean, I think we all know that the, the key to creativity is crossing domains. I don't care if that's intellectual domains. I don't care if that's people domains that indifference uh, and in, in the explosion of difference is where creativity happens. Now, one has to be curious in difference. 
one has to be curious about some other person. One has to be curious about some other business. One has to be curious about some other domain. And then actually disciplining one's curiosity. And really, you have to work. Curiosity may be a gift, but you can work at it and become really good at being curious. Now, it turns out for me, what happened was when when I met when I read you know when I read about disruptive innovation, for me what's what jumped out was, oh my God, really, we have to ask this fundamental question, which is very hard: what's the job to get done? And you have to crawl it for religion and spirituality and psychological and ethical development and raising of consciousness. Those don't that whole cluster of things, which is what religion is supposed to be about. You have to crawl into how people tick. And if you think about it, religion should be best. Religion is what teaches about empathy. Empathy is I want to know what it is that you're feeling so that I can actually know you better and perhaps be able to help you so collectively we can go on a better journey. And the fact is, and I can say this as an eighth generation rabbi, most of religion is either trivial and insipid or very dangerous and very nasty. And for me as a religious person, who has an inheritance, and who knows other religious people who have inheritances. What a shame that these technologies, that's what religions are. They're just technologies. Sabbath is just a giant app, right? The holidays, Christmas is a really big, big, really significant app. But if these apps are not working, if if we have holidays and practices that actually don't cultivate the very qualities of character, of compassion and love and perspective and and courage and bravery and generosity, if they don't actually get that job done, then what the hell is happening? What is this about? So I get up in the morning and I, I take this theory and I ask, what is the job? And then we have to really do good work about it. We have to test. We have to hypothesize. Like any company has the product and you have to test the product. Well, I think it would be really good. I think we should all, Christians should be testing Christmas this year on whether it works. Every Jew should be testing Hanukkah on whether it really works. It's very nice to light a candle and give gifts, but is it working? Is it getting any job done? Is it cultivating hope? Is it cultivating optimism? Is it cultivating uh, uh, trust that even when things are dark, we actually can persevere? Because if it's not, we're bullshitting around. And if it's not, we're doing damage to people. So, I'm interested in in asking that question and being really self-critical. And when one's self-critical, and I think I don't care if you're a CEO of a company, right? It's so easy to blame. It's a marketing problem or 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 it's so easy to blame something when sometimes you know what it is? It's I'm not really solving a real problem for people with my product and service. And I'm not delivering in a way that's accessible and usable and that really treats my customer, my consumer, my user, my parishioner, my congregant, my fellow citizen with the deep respect that all human beings are entitled. And I don't care if that's buying buying a, a drink or that is is using a liturgic a liturgy. Because just remember, every tradition that we know was that innovation at one moment. Every single one, Christmas and the Sabbath, a cross and a star and a mandala, every single thing was an innovation. And the only thing a tradition is, is an innovation that made it. So anybody who wants to monetize their innovations, the truth is, right, what they really want to do is they would love for their innovation to become a tradition. So can, can I jump in? Um, 
on because we had the conversation about Hanukkah and Christmas and jobs to be done. <clears throat> One of our favorite, when I say favorite, it's really Erwin and I, you know, have these conversations. If we use the expression Chrismica, just I does that ring a bell to you when we call it Chrismica? <laughs> I get what you mean. Uh, well, it's what happens. Here's a problem to be solved. And Erwin can give you the statistics, but there are an enormous number of intermarriages now where you'll have Christian on the one side, and I'm just going to address Chris, Christian and uh, Jewish on the other side, and there's a marriage in the family. What holiday do you celebrate, and how do you celebrate it? And while the combination of saying, gee, can we have a chrismica from an innovation standpoint, what really made that one take off, and you can't say go viral because you know back then we didn't really have go viral, was from an episode in on the OC, if you remember the OC, called Chrismica. And what happened, which was wildly important for any leader, anybody in the innovation space, any CEO, what really put this into, I'll call it the, uh, you know, turbocharged it, was for the first time, and Erwin, correct me, um, in 2,000 years, the cardinals and the rabbis issued a joint statement criticizing and the chrismica and how awful this was. And all you need to do, if you're a millennial and you hear the rabbis and the cardinals are saying it's bad, your inclination is, okay, I got to know all about it. So chrismica might not be thought of as a disruptive innovation, but it's connecting to what we would call, these would be adjacencies as opposed to non-adjacencies, but the model really for creativity is and genius. Actually, I want to, I want to make, you know, I want to inject a, a quote, which I kind of made up as I was listening to Erwin, which is not all curious people are geniuses, but all geniuses are curious. And that. that is probably one uh, connective thought. And it doesn't matter. Show me one who is a genius that wasn't curious. And that I thought was a really powerful concept of, you know, Urban, I think you called it the muscle. You can practice curiosity. You can practice creativity. It's not just this necessarily endowed quality you're born with. You can cultivate these kinds of tools. And so, you know, just kind of coming back, you know, when we talk about every CEO will know the concept of what's our core competence, you know, what are our adjacencies and what are our non-adjacencies? And most of the most creative things that come out is when people who tend to be geniuses can connect non-adjacencies. And, you know, Erwin, jump in because we can do a little bit, you know, how that would manifest itself in the religious, spiritual, ethical world. We can talk about, um, you know, how it you know, applies to the technological world. But this concept of connecting non-adjacencies, that's really where you're going to see some of the most interesting things. And by definition, the concept of you know, transdisciplinary approaches is all about non-adjacencies. What happens when I put an artist in with a group of doctors? What happens when I put a musician in with uh, you know, someone who's studying history? 
that's where you're going to find some of the, you know, that's a little bit of the special sauce is who are those people that can connect the dots on the outside, not the ones that are close in. That's where you're going to see a lot of the traction. And so uh, I'm a CEO and I'm thinking about innovation. I want to have as many different people in a process, not just all the same people who created, you know, the same 12 people doing the same thing over and over again. Don't expect any breakthroughs. You may have a lot of incremental improvements, but it's this notion of connecting non-adjacencies. And you can practice that. I mean, it's just put, you know, put your dots out and say, how would I connect? Erwin, give me one from the religious sphere that you think would be, you know, a great example of non-adjacencies. No, look, look, every single, remember, when, when religion's working right, then whatever we mean by the ethical and psychological questions are, are being asked in every domain. In other words, once religion actually gets, once anything gets separated and can't find an adjacency, it usually cannibalizes itself and becomes very destructive. So I would say as soon as religion gets separated or as soon as the ethical questions or the psychological questions get separated from, a do- from any domain, that domain gets hurt. Religion gets hurt because it begins to be stupid and dangerous, but, but the domains get hurt too. Look what we have. We need a remoralizing of capitalism, right? Everyone knows it. I don't care. I had a major banker here yesterday, right, in a session that I was doing. Everyone knows there's something wrong. Right. And it's not that everyone it's not that no one and no one's doing anything wrong. It turns out we call this the peanut butter complex that, you know, it one bad peanut in a batch can ruin it. You can ruin all the peanut butter. Right. And it's very hard once it's all creamy to find out what that peanut is. But so it turns out people with very good intentions can get themselves inside of systems that the systems themselves become very, very corrosive. So we need a remoralizing of capitalism. Well, that's not going to happen because you have compliance offices, right? That are that are that are you know paid a quarter of what 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 other people are paid to get around the compliance offices. I mean, so the whole thing—it's always trying to create new domains, right? And I mean, we take technology and we apply it across every possible domain. Who thought that you can use a phone to take a picture? Okay, I mean, so, you know, who thought that you can use a phone to actually get a taxi cab? So it's always across domains. And someone says, yikes, I never saw that before. What if the, we put those two things together? I mean, who put the first, Who listen, who put the first, first egg cream together? You know, as a New Yorker, I love egg creams. Who decided, who said, gosh, I think if we put a little seltzer, a little milk, <laughs> and a little, that'll be a really interesting drink. So it's true with everything. Right now, in the serious domains, it, it becomes if we think STEM is going to solve all of our problems, it's not going to solve all of our problems. Because if you have 17% of American graduates from any humanities program, then what we basically said is we separated being human from the rest from STEM. Now, humanities have a real problem in trying to figure out how come that happened. Right? STEM has a real issue to say, gosh, we better figure out how to study what it means to be human. So it's always intersections. The problem right now, or amongst the problems right now, is these intersections, these are different language systems. So you have to be almost chameleon-like in being able to speak different languages or be curious about the different languages. And, and if I can jump in for a second to just you know amplify what Erwin is talking about, let me give you a very specific example, that one of our favorites, about you know when you don't even have the language, you have to kind of come up with things that can simplify what we might call high concept. And this is something, you know, any CEO that doesn't know this story should learn this story. 
But if I say to you, and I, I bet because this is about leadership and innovation, it might seem a little bit less, you know, high level. But one of the terms that we use is called curiosity. And curiosity, are you familiar with the story of the QWERTY keyboard? Uh, probably not the part you're thinking of. Tell me. Yeah, well, so if you look at any keyboard or a traditional standard keyboard that's, you know, in with English letters, it goes Q-W-E-R-T-Y. And a curious person might say, gee, as Isaac Asimov once you know, said, is the, the greatest thing a scientist can say is, gee, isn't that funny? So when we look at a QWERTY keyboard, we say, gee, isn't that funny? Why did they pick those letters? Now, step two, if you go back to the original version of a typewriter, as people became adept, they started typing at 60 words a minute, 80 words a minute. And if you remember the old, uh, when they had the, like, the piano keys that used to go up, and it, today kids wouldn't even know what that is, but an old typewriter, before the IBM Selectra came along, those keys, each one had a letter on it. And as people learned to type faster and faster, those keys would always jam. So the QWERTY keyboard was by design intended to slow down people because it's the least obvious, least intuitive way of laying out the keys. It's the one they put the letters that are in the weirdest combinations. So you say, wow, that's what the QWERTY keyboard is. And why do we still have that? We don't have those funny looking piano key things. Everything's digital. And even when the IBM Selectra came out, they never changed the QWERTY keyboard What's known when they tested is something called the Dvorak keyboard. But why haven't we adopted it? And the answer is behavior is a funny change. It's not that you couldn't, but the switching costs and the pain of adoption, these are real things that CEOs, and most of them have their own different version. But we happen to use this thing called, if it's a curiosity, by definition, we're going to be interested. Our sponsor for this episode of Innovation and Leadership is Skillshare. If you're not familiar with them, they're an online learning platform with over 18,000 classes on business and marketing and entrepreneurship and technology and, and lots of other classes too, illustration, think, other things I'm interested in. Um, they've given us a special offer where for the listeners of our show, you can get two months for just 99 cents where you can see all these 18,000 classes, unlimited access. It's uh, Skillshare.com slash leader. And I think what I like about them most is their high quality classes that are from high credibility instructors, you know, content marketing right from Contently. Or the one I took was uh, last was email marketing right from MailChimp, where you know, these are folks who are obviously seeing millions of other people's email marketing campaigns go out. So they, they really are kind of a high credibility source of information. So again, it's Skillshare.com slash leader. 99 cents for com complete access to all their courses for the next two months. Uh, one last time, skillshare.com slash L-E-A-D-E-R. Thanks. You know, it, it's interesting how you think about the Dvorak keyboard, how it didn't become a tradition, right? And so it didn't get taught in school. And so right. it didn't get become part of people's lives. <laughs> you you got know, it, it, it makes me think... Um, I, I want to go back to something you said, Erwin, kind of riffing off where Craig was going with that. Um, why do you think 
what do you think holds us back as humans from the deeper levels of honesty about these kind of questions? I mean, I'm thinking from an entrepreneurial standpoint, both myself and how many other fellow entrepreneurs don't end, our, end up asking ourselves the really hard questions and curiosity about, are we building something people actually want? You know, we just, we just, we pursue our businesses with religious fervor. And here I've got a rabbi on the show asking, hey, is religion even getting done what it's supposed to get done? Do you have anything to say about just like the courage to ask the hard questions? I mean, it's, let me, let me put it this way. In every part of our lives, from the most external, our businesses, all the way to our internal, asking hard questions um, about our life is very painful. And it's very disruptive. And it makes us vulnerable. And we are not hardwired to be vulnerable. We're hardwired to want to be safe and secure. And so the, when we say we have to create environments, when, the, when, when you read, you know, in HBR or wherever you read, oh, my God, we have to have innovative environments and, and cultures can only be innovative if people can fail. And, and, yeah, that's very nice when Jeff Bezos says that, you know, and, and I love when incredibly successful people say, oh, yes, people should fail. Right. And, and, and then you read about their companies and if you fail, you get fired. You know, it's a funny thing. So, so to actually be vulnerable about whether it's an identity question or whether it's a business question is very, very, very painful. So how do we create that? You can't do that alone. You can't meditate yourself to invulnerability because vulnerability is the fundamental state and everything else is an illusion, right? And I don't care if it's a bank account or a a temple or a religious practice. Those are all illusions that help us make believe that things aren't vulnerable. And because they're illusions, they get very seriously fixed. I don't care if it's a company's commitment to a product that's dying or it's a religion's commitment to a, a, a ideology or a political parties, a, a political system's commitment to an ideology. That's to let go of those things mean I don't know who I am right now. I don't know what my company is right now. I don't know what my country is right now. That's a really scary space to be in. So some people jump off cliffs and other people hold on for dear life. And then there are the people who are willing to say, can we create some environments? This is an environment, right? This, this podcast is an environment in which, yikes, can we be a little maybe a touch more vulnerable? It's very hard to say about my own religion in a public space. You know, like it's, it's, it, there's a lot of dark parts of it. And it, it, it's, it does some bad things. And, and, and the same thing, Coca-Cola has to do that about sugary drinks. And, and, and politicians have to do that about being on the take. And, 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 and bankers are going to have to say, gosh, yes, we can use all this technology to financialize an economy. But, you know, here's how capital works. And the fact is, if it's only about capital, we'll extract everything. There'll be no, no land left, no labor left. And we will have extracted all value from everything. So these are hard questions to ask because they make us vulnerable and we don't have a culture and we definitely do not have a business climate and we definitely don't have a religious climate in which the word, I just don't know. I really don't know the answer to that. I don't know how many CEOs can get up in front of their board and say, I, 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 I just don't know right now. 
I don't know how many politicians can get up in front of the country and say, listen, this globalization thing, it's, it, that's, I, 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 I just, I just don't know. I don't know how many religious leaders can get up and say, you know, I, I, I just don't know. Well, if we don't create environments in which people can't, can't, if people can say, I don't know, then there'll be a lot of false certainty and nothing is more dangerous than false certainty. You know, I, I want to, oh, is my mic back on or no? Yeah, you're back on. Okay. So I want to use those really hard questions and sort of say, okay, if it's going to remain hard, what are the tools, what are the techniques, what are the, the rituals, the processes to help us become stronger to answer some of those hard questions? And what we have found, and th- this is not unique to us, is we see pop culture, uh, music, fashion, sports, these are areas that the pop culture helps us get there in certain ways. I'm going to be very specific. Um we're talking, Erwin is addressing some of, you know, the hard questions in the deepest recesses of our psyches. But let me just give you an interesting one, because we talked about curiosity a few minutes ago. Let me give you two that are a little bit more playful. And, you know, that's the Einsteinian combinatory play. When it's playful, if you can't come up with a solution, go outside and play for a couple of hours and then come back in and you'll probably come up with a solution. But two of my favorites are these curiosities. Um, one is called Daylight Savings, and John Oliver has this hysterical segment on how is this still a thing? And when we ask ourselves, well, if Daylight Savings isn't doing the job that we thought it was doing, why do we still have it? And the answer is because change is hard. Let me give you one that's a little bit more uh, serious, but in 1866, Congress in the U.S. decided we should go to the metric system. Now, do you know how many countries in the world um, are not on the metric system? Or at least at last count, and even if we don't have them exactly right, the point remains the same. Three. I believe it's Liberia, Myanmar, and the United States. And if you ask yourself the question, why is it we didn't go to the metric system, it becomes really interesting. And if you said the following, here's a question. Is one of the re- no? This is a thought experiment. This is not you know. Don't I don't want to put this out there as the thought. But if you ask yourself the question, is one of the problems with our math scores is that when we're teaching math and science, when you're in the United States, you have to know how to convert quarts into pints, into liters, into ounces, into spoons. You're using up so much mental, so many mental, uh, so much mental energy that maybe what if that's one of the reasons. But what would it take if I said to you, you know, Jess, what we'd really like to do is have your show focus on changing the United States to the metric system. Wow, that's a big challenge. But why is that? Why can't we make these changes? We know the answers to many of these things. And that's part of the challenge. And that's, you know, a a more playful way. And if you can get people interested in the slightly light, more humorous, provocative things, then maybe you say, you know, that was it was painful, but it wasn't that painful. Now I can ask myself some of the really tough questions. Well, you know what I do. I just call my friend Erwin and ask about how you start a tradition. (laughs) (laughs) Guess what? That's the right answer. Now we have to figure that out. And what we know is it's going to start out as an innovation. 
Well, listen, well, listen this has been this great. Has been I know great. we're winding down winding for the end of part two. Um, why don't we end this way? Will each of you share either a piece of advice you wish you would have known when you're early, earlier in your career in life or the best piece of advice you ever shared? Um, sorry, the best piece of advice you ever received or the advice you would give a younger version of yourself. Um, Craig, you want to go first? <laughs> oh, wow. Do I get to pass and then come back after I hear Erwin or do I have to go first? <laughs> you, can, you can do that. Yeah, you could. Erwin, you got one on the t- I, I have a. I just I have to figure out what will be most effective. I've got a lot of them, but they may not raise to the, uh, rise to the occasion of being the single most important. But if you have one on the tip of your tongue, you go first, then I'll try and collect my thoughts. You know, it's, you can only be who you are when you are. So I guess maybe that's the tip. I, I wish I was, if I was telling my, if I was talking to myself, you know, 20 years ago, I just turned 60. I, I, I would say, be a little less hard on yourself. Um, be a little less hard on yourself because um, you will actually be more creative and you will accomplish more. Um, so I think that's a piece. And, and the other piece is the piece of advice that I say to everybody, embrace the sacred messiness of life. The messiness is where is the grist for the mill. The messiness is where all the wisdom is. The messiness is where all the growth is. And sometimes it sucks. And sometimes it's not fair. And most of the time, good portions of life are completely absurd. But it, you have to embrace the messiness itself. Because in the messiness is the meaning. Love it. Yeah, Craig, I, I, Craig I, can you match that? Well, I don't know if I can match it, but at least I had, I'm going to try and give a coherent answer since we were talking earlier about, you know, Clay's latest book, Competing Against Luck, uh, Competing Against Chance. To me, it's the same thing. Um, but one of the great, best pieces of uh, wisdom, I don't know if I call it advice, was a, a quote, and I'm not exactly sure who said it. It's probably been said by many, many you know, about the role of luck. You know, we've always heard, I'd rather be smart. I'd rather be lucky than smart is the traditional way of saying it. But there's a, a, a response to that, which is, gee, it's funny. It seems that the harder I work, the luckier I get. And I think there is no shortcut to some of these things. You just have to stay at it. And even it's not all exciting. It's not all epiphanies or aha moments or awe, wonder, and enchantment. Mm. But you have to work hard at that. You have to see a lot of stuff to say, I found the signal. I'm learning how to wipe out the noise. And so I think this notion of continue to work hard, you know, it, that's what it takes. I mean, you, you talk to, uh, you know, you read about the quotes from Thomas Edison. It's 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration, you know, these things, maybe they're trite, but they, they, as I said before, trite often works. There's a reason it's trite. Um, you know, and I think basically one quote just, you know, it, if you want to live an extraordinary life, you're probably going to have to take some extraordinary risks. And when we think about leadership and innovation and corporations and the CEO, corporations, you know, and this is straight out of, you know, Clay Christensen, you know, maybe it's 201 instead of 101, but corporations are not designed to enable people to take extraordinary risks, certainly public companies. And if you're a 62-year-old CEO and someone comes in, you say, you know, 
I, that's a very big risk. And I'm looking at retirement and I don't really need to go out on some epic failure. And so the tendency is in corporations, they're designed to be command and control checks and balances. But when you're a young guy and you know you want to go through the two guys in a garage, you know, and, and it's actually one of the great quotes from uh, Bill Gates when he's a, who, who does he worry about most in the world? Um, the quote was, it's two guys. I don't know their names, but it's two guys in the garage. No one else I'm terribly worried about. And we don't know where it's coming from. But those are the people, if you fail when you're 21, okay, if you're resilient, take that as a lesson. If you start failing when you're, you know, going into the sunset years, it's a little bit harder. You have more at risk. Well, I think that's great advice from both of you. And appreciate making so much time here today. Our pleasure and with a little so much real pleasure, real pleasure. Maybe you'll even invite us back again. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about if you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or four hundred million dollars. Anyways, he, uh, he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks. At Farmers Insurance, we have concrete evidence that parking under an industrial cement mixer... That's just asking for trouble. Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state.